Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to continue on in our series looking at the church. You know, this year has been difficult for us. We have been um, uh, home a lot. We've been not getting out as much. And so uh, because of the situation we find ourselves in nationally and globally as well, there's many people who have yet to go back to church. And so, Ricky mentioned earlier, there's churches even in our own area that uh, have opened and then had to close back, and then some have never uh, opened back up. And so they're strictly doing things online. And so we're just seeing this big uh, shift, big flux in, in, in church life. And, and uh, for many people, they will get out of the habit of going to church and being a part of church and will never return. Others will gradually move back in. And thankfully for us as a church, we've been working diligently to try to be as normal as possible with ta- by taking precautions at the same time. But uh, in all of this, we just feel like it's important to speak to the church. What is the church? Who is the church? What is the church about? What, are we, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? And that's what we're trying to do during this, uh, this nine-week series that we are in. And so this morning, we are going to talk about the church committed. You see there on the screens, if you want to follow along, you can use your Version Bible app. You can uh, search for in events for Red Lane Baptist and you can get the notes that way. Or every Sunday, my whole manuscript is on our website. If you go to our website, go to the message page, and then find the sermon ex- itself within the, the particular sermon series. You can follow along that way. But this morning, as we move on in this series, we're talking about a committed people. You know, we have began talking about a preaching people. We're a people that is, uh, we've been saved through Christ, and we've been built upon Him and upon His Word. And so we're preaching people. It's central to everything we do and everything that we are as a body of believers. We, in that, are a gospel people. We preach the gospel. We're redeemed through the gospel. We share the gospel. And, and so that moves us into being a converted people. We're not just religious. We're converted. We've had a, a moment in our life where we came into relationship with Jesus, and he has transformed us. Old has passed away. Behold, new has come, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so we're a preaching people, a gospel people, a converted people. And then last week we talked out of Matthew 28, and we see that there that we are an evangelistic people. See, we believe the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for us, right? You've been redeemed, hopefully, most if not all of us in this room and online watching. You've come into relationship with Jesus. And so the gospel has changed your life, but Jesus didn't just die so that you could be converted, so that you could be transformed. He died in providing redemption so that you could be used of God to take the gospel and share it with others so that they can experience what you've experienced. So we are an evangelistic people called, commissioned by God to go and to make disciples. So this morning we take a further step in this fifth message and we're going to talk about the fact that we are a committed people. Committed people. You know, ministry is largely a teaching activity. We We do a lot of things in ministry, but by and large, we are teaching. Uh, This is a teaching activity. And so being in ministry and the fact that it's a teaching activity largely can be a little bit dangerous because you really know how, you never know exactly how somebody's going to hear or receive what is being said, what is being taught. You don't know how they're going to understand what you're trying to communicate. I heard about a student ministry leader who got a call from a parent of one of the students uh, this irate mom phoned her son, her little boy's teacher, uh, saying, Is it true you, ho- you told all the kids that they were crazy? Small group leader, kind of stunned by this, uh, this statement and this, this emotion that was come across the phone line, said, No, I didn't, but I did tell them they should all be committed. Now, whether or not you think this teacher was uh, advocating for the, the, the committal of these students to an institution or some sort of mental home, I don't know. It depends on the definition you're using. Is she saying that or is she saying they need to take a little bit stronger stance in their commitment to the Lord and to the Lord's people? Well, in many ways, in today's culture, the, the, the mere idea, the mere thought of being more committed to something may come across a little crazy. They may think that the person who's advocating or, or lobbying for more commitment, a greater sense of devotion, may need to be institutionalized and put in a mental home because that is a foreign concept in our culture. You see, I believe we live in an age of commitment phobia. 
That is, there's a fear that in promising to do something good, and committing to something, in other words, we will miss out on getting something even better. And so what we would rather do as a culture is we want to keep all of our options on the table. We will absolutely not commit to something until the last minute, sometimes even after the deadline, because we want to make sure that we don't miss something else that may be better before we commit to something today, even something we should commit to. Sprinkled in with commitment phobia is a spirit of lone rangerism in our culture. This, this idea, this spirit says, why depend on someone else if you can do it yourself? I mean, we're Americans. We like to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and go do things on our own. And so today, people in our culture are concerned with ease and simplicity. And so why entangle yourself with others? Because they might be a burden to you and probably will be a burden to you. So it's just easier to do things our own. It's easier to do it alone rather than doing it in conjunction with others. So what we have today is a culture of people who do almost everything alone. You put these two cultural tendencies together in the local church, and you get a concoction that is fairly hostile toward New Testament Christianity, and you can bet that it is most certainly uncomfortable with church membership. The Bible, however, calls us to something different. It always calls us to community. It's a call to be in community with God and in community with His people. It's a call to community that requires allegiance. You see, what you see in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, whether it's the Old Testament, the, the, the people of God in Israel, whether it's the, the people of God in the church, it's always a call to embrace the Lord and to embrace His people, to be allegiant to both in your life. Last week from the Great Commission passage there in Matthew 28, we learned that we are an evangelistic people. We're to preach and to share the gospel, call people to faith in Jesus and make disciples of all nations. In fact, there in that, that passage, it gives us how to, we're to do that. We're to go and to tell. We're to go and make disciples. We're to go and to share. That's what evangelism is. And, and then we're to baptize them. We're to teach them the Word of God. In other words, we're to connect new believers to the local church so that they might be able to grow in His Word. That's what we're to do. So as we round out this sermon series, over the next four messages, they're going to focus on the framework for discipleship in the context of the church. You see, your discipleship is not for you to just do on your own. It's not a self-study to be done in home and isolation. Your discipleship is always to be in continuity with the people of God, with other followers of Jesus. You need them, and they need you. So as a converted people those who have been changed by Christ, and as an evangelist to people who understand our responsibility to make disciples of others, we want to make sure that we can recognize and we know the markers of true Christian identity. So we begin with the understanding that we are a committed people. It doesn't mean we're committed to a mental institution, though some of you might need to be from time to time. I'm glad I got one joke. Thank you, Ben, for that uh, uh, just kind of bless you pastor just keep trying brother that's what I heard up there so thank you Hebrews chapter 10 let's read verses 19 through 25 the writer says this therefore brother since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of hope of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we uh, are just grateful for our opportunity to gather together. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we've sung that's reminded us of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. God, as we look at your word here, as we talk about what it has to say about our lives and in context of community, the, the community of faith called the church, help us to understand that it's important. God, help us to see the importance of it in our own lives personally and how we're a blessing to others. God, help us to be a committed 
people. God, I thank you that this church has existed for 174 years and, and by the grace of God will continue to exist on into the future. But Lord, largely it's contingent upon our willingness to see the importance of it, of us together in our own discipleship. So God, speak to us through your word. Take these verses from Hebrews 10. And God, help us to see the importance of the church so that the world out there can see the gospel fleshed out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were committed to a system of religion that basically kind of kept them from the presence of God. Uh, think about all the, the different stories in the Old Testament you see there. There's, there's always a barrier between the presence of God and the people of God. You think of, of Moses and the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt and God is leading them to the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And, and all the while, they were never to get too close to that lest they die. You think when, when Moses is, is, is going up to Mount Sinai to receive the law, he's, he's told by God, don't let anyone else come up here lest they die. So there's these barriers in the Old Testament, therefore a system built around that which kept the people from the presence of God. In fact, in the, the law, in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish religion, it was only the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies, and that was only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. You look at how the tabernacle and later how the temple were constructed. There were barriers, there were levels of, of, of ground, levels of, of area that were separated from people so that only certain peoples could get past those barriers. And again, no one could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And that only that one day of the year. And so as these Hebrew believers received this, this letter, received this word from the author, this would have been something that was just delicious to them. Coming out of the Jewish faith, coming out of that religion, understanding all of these barriers to God, but now having this relationship with God through God the Son and hearing how Jesus has fulfilled all that the Old Testament law was leaning to or leading to and speaking about and pointing to how he's the sacrificial lamb, how he's the one who's made atonement for sins, but ultimately how he's opened up access to God. This would have been incredible and gracious truth to them. So Hebrews 10 here, the whole chapter, describes just how Jesus is that fulfillment of the law. It speaks of how his sacrifice did fully satisfy the judgment of God against sin. How it nullified the need for ongoing sacrifices to be made by the priests. And the reason there's no longer a need for ongoing sacrifices is because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and the high priest himself. It's through his shed blood that we now as humans, sinful humans, have access to to God. And, and so these Hebrew believers were dumbfounded and in awe of what they're reading here. This great truth of salvation that, that the author lays out about salvation, this great truth about the gospel and what Jesus does, does for us, I want you to catch something about what he's saying here. He's not just laying out a, a teaching on salvation. The, the technical term would be soteriology. This is not just a teaching about how Christ saves you and redeems you. It also is a teaching that is connected to the church. And so really what we see here is soteriology, the gospel, salvation, connected to ecclesiology, which is the teaching on the church. These two doctrines are one and the same. They're closely connected. For instance, in verses 22 through 24, we see these encouraging words, really a phrase where it says, let us. Three different times it says, let us. It's, not, it's plural. It's, in other words, he's not saying, you do these things or you consider these things. He's saying, let us. We're the people of God. We're the, we're the church of the living God. And so in verse 22, we see, let us draw near. It's an invitation. We're, we're invited as the people of God into this wonderful walk with Jesus, all because of what he did. Verse 23, we see, let us hold fast, is a profession. It's a profession of faith that we're making together. In verse 24, let us consider, is a contemplation. We're to contemplate how we're to stir one another up to good works, to love and good works. And so we discover in this passage that the church is not an afterthought. Think about what I just said there. The church is not an afterthought. 
It's not your faith with Jesus, and it's, it's just your personal faith. It's You've got it on yourself, and, and, and no one else is involved there. It's just me and Jesus, me in my closet and Jesus. That's not what your salvation and your Christian life is all about. It's let us, right? It's the church collectively. Yes, you have a personalized, individualized, individualized salvation, but it's also we have a salvation. And so the church is top tier. It's not second tier in the Christian faith. Instead, what we see here is the image in this passage is painting one of involvement. We're to be involved in the gospel, involved in this Christian life together as the people of God. Here's a statement I want you to to write down and think about. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who's not connected to a local church. Read it from Matthew to Revelation. You will not say a follower of Jesus... I know what you're thinking right now. What about that guy on the cross? Okay, one exception, but that guy was dying a couple hours later. He didn't have time to get baptized and connected to the local church. But outside of him, show me someone who's a follower of Jesus, walking with the Lord in close communion, who's not connected to a local church. You will not find one. So the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who's not connected to a local church. And when I say connected, I mean more than a name on a roll. I mean walking in step, living in fellowship with the people of God. So it leads us to ask a question, what is a church? Is it the red brick uh, steeple-type building there on the corner? Is that what a church is? Not necessarily because you don't see that in the Bible. What we do discover in the New Testament is that the church is primarily a body of people who profess and give evidence of being in relationship with Jesus Christ. We further see that this body of people are committed to Christ and they're committed to one another. All through the epistles in the New Testament, you see Paul and the other writings calling on the people of God to embrace the Lord, to walk in step with Him, while at the same time embracing and walking in step together with the Lord. That's what the church is. The church is the body of Christ, that local collection of Christians who are committed to Christ and committed to one another. And so, the church is a committed people. By talking about commitment, we're talking about the idea of membership. We're talking about being in the church, being a member, being involved, being connected, having some skin in the game when it comes to the church. This idea in today's culture, because of Lone Rangerism, because of commitment phobia, because of just the, 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 the mantra of our culture today, is a foreign concept. In fact, many times I will meet with people and, and who are attending and, and the, the, you know, kind of getting involved. And when we bring up the idea of membership, they push back a little bit. Why is that important is the question. So I go through conversation much like we're doing today and try to point out to them and anyone why membership is important to the local church. See, when people have questions about that and push against that, they have membership to them comes across as being perhaps unfriendly. Maybe it comes across as elitist. It's the whole idea of, wow, that's pretty exclusive. I thought we were supposed to be inclusive. I thought the love of Jesus was an inclusive thing, and we shouldn't exclude others. Well, we're not talking about who can attend the church. We're talking about who's a member of the church. There's a big difference there, right? And if we're going to have this conversation of exclusive and inclusive, is the gospel not in- exclusive? Is the gospel message itself not an exclusive message? Did Jesus not say in John 14, 6, I am the way, definite article, not I am a way? I am one of many ways. I am one of a plethora of ways. That's not what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Three definite articles there in the Greek. No one comes to the Father but by me. Pretty exclusive message, is it not? And yet at the same time, it's inclusive. Paul says in Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so when we talk about the gospel, it is both exclusive and inclusive. When we talk about membership, it is exclusive as well as inclusive. It's exclusive from the fact that you need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's who's included into the body of Christ. But it's inclusive because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is welcome. And so in this age of commitment phobia and lone rangerism, 
I believe it's important that we possess a biblical ecclesiology. That's why we're going through this series. We need to have a biblical understanding of who the church is and what the church is. And specifically, we want to look at how we need to be a committed people even as we talk about church membership. Let me share with you three brief things. This is not all-inclusive, but three things I want to point out to you from this passage this morning about church membership. Number one, church membership is for every Christian. It's for every Christian. In verses 19 through 22, the writer here of Hebrews lays out what Jesus has done for us, what his sacrifice on the cross has done for sinful humanity. These verses illustrate the provision that has been made for our entrance into the faith. We see here that it's the shed blood of Jesus which has satisfied the penalty of sin. It's not your good works. It's the good work of Jesus on the cross. It shares here that which brought condemnation and separation has been atoned for by the blood of Christ. And through it, a way has been opened. I love how the writer of Hebrews says this. A way has been opened through the curtain. I mentioned earlier the barriers in the Jewish religion that prohibited people from coming into the presence of God. Now, Jesus provides a way for us to go through the curtain. And the beauty thing, beautiful thing about the death of Christ there on the cross is that when he died, the curtain, the Gospels tell us, was ripped from the top to bottom. I believe symbolizing access now through Christ to God the Father. So Jesus is our great priest. He's the great priest before God the Father, and through his sacrifice, our hearts have been made clean. So his atoning work on the cross not only nullified the separation between, between sinners and God, it united all believers in God's family. That, that's, remember, you got to remember what he's doing here. He's speaking to a local church. He's speaking to a body of believers. And so he's telling them how they individually are saved, but also collectively what that means for them. It unites them in God's family, the local church. Now, some would argue, well, the church, yeah, I agree with that. We see it in the New Testament, but that's a universal thing. It's, it's, it speaks of people who are saved all time, all places, and, and, and uh, all ages, right? All kinds of people everywhere. I would agree and, and acknowledge that there is a universal church. We will worship the Father for all of eternity with a universal church. But as you read through the New Testament, Paul's not writing to the universal church. Peter's not writing to the universal church. He's writing to local churches. The church in the New Testament always finds its expression locally in real-time places. So then, again, the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who's not connected to a local church. And this local expression has nothing to do with the authority of the state. I mean, think about what the church is. It's not something that man's concocted. It's not something that the state has concocted. No, it's something that the Lord has birthed. And we know that Jesus has supreme power. He has supreme authority. So the church, in other words, does not exist by the permission of the state. It exists by the express authorization of Jesus. That's why if you go to closed countries around the world, you will find the church there. If the gospel's been preached, people have been converted, you will find church. You will find a committed people there. Here in America, in most Western societies at large, we have a faulty view of the local church. We lump the church into the same category as soccer clubs and charity organizations. Think about how low of a view we have of the local church. To most Christians, maybe, yeah, I'm going to say most Christians. I think that's a, a good position to have doesn't sound very nice, but I think it's the true position of American Christianity. Churches are just another kind of voluntary association. Ultimately, we kind of regard the church like a social or a, uh, a service provider. I need an oil change, and my inspection goes out this month. So guess where I'm probably going to go this week? I'm going to go to the, the, the gas sta- or the, the oil changing station. And I'm going to have them change my oil. I'm going to have them service my truck. I'm going to have them do an inspection. And so when do I go do that? I do it when it's time. I got that little sticker up on the top of my left corner of my windshield that tells me, hey, buddy, it's 83,000 some odd miles, and you're at 84,000. You need to get your oil change, which is where I'm at right now. I turned 84,000 yesterday. And so it's time for me to go. I'm about 800 miles over my limit. And so I'm going to go do that. I know that last year I, my beautiful deputy friends uh, like to tell me when my inspections are out on my truck. And so I, I don't want to have that experience again, and so I recognized the other day, hey, my inspection's due this month. 
So I'm going to get that done. I don't want my friends to pull me over on the road and make a, uh, an example of me. So I'm going to do that. But I do that because there's a service provided. When we come to the church, the church is not a service provider. It's not a mechanic who services our soul or fills us up with, uh, fills our spiritual tank up when it's empty. Membership and involvement in the church orbit, do not orbit around your needs and your desires. It's not something where you show up and participate when the need arises or time permits. But that's where a lot of Christians are today. Oh, if I've got enough time, I may go to church. Or if there's not something better, then I'll go to the church. Or if there's not a tragedy in my life, actually, that's the reverse there. Most people show up only when there's a tragedy, right? Lost a job, lost a loved one, uh, money's low, things are bad at home, you run to church. But when things get good, what happens? You pull away. Why is that? It's because you view the local church as a service provider to help you when you're in a jam. You see, if I'm running low on gas, I know I need to get to the gas station. Because if I don't, my truck's going to die on the road. And that's what many people will do. When the tank's low in their spiritual life, they run to church to try to fill it up but then they're gone again. You know, as we read through the Bible, we discover that we need community. Why is it we need community? It's because we've been created for it. We've been made for and called to community. A part of my dissertation that I wrote several years ago, I dealt with this idea of community in Scripture. It was an incredible study for me. As you look at the Bible, what you see is community is there from Genesis to Revelation. You see it first in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect community with one another right? Loving each other, caring for one another. I believe the reason that, that the Father and the Son, there was such agony when Jesus was on the cross, was because there was, it's just impossible for our finite minds to understand this, but how in the world could God the Father and God the Son ever be separated? But that's what happened on the cross. There's community there. So God creates humanity in that community to, to, to enjoy that community, to live in that community, to be with God in community, be with one another in community. You see it in Adam and Eve. You see it with Adam and Eve and God. Sin destroyed that, but even in the midst of that this destruction, God has a plan. It's not like he came up with plan B. It was already in place. But God tells Adam that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to deal with sin. But even there in Genesis 3, God deals with their sin symbolically through the sacrifice of this animal, makes skin, skin coverings for them to cover their sin and to cover their shame. Later on in the narrative, we see God calling Abraham to himself, or Abram at the time, and comes into relationship with Abram, creates from him a nation called Israel. He gives them laws to live by. A community is developed. And then ultimately that leads us to Jesus on the cross as he is the Messiah and a church is birthed who expresses on a greater level this community. And ultimately in heaven, we will find and live out for all of eternity the community we were created for. You won't live in community with God alone. You will live in community with God for all of eternity with the people of God. You were created for that. So every church member should be, or every, church membership is for every Christian. I believe today we need to change our thinking. The church is not just a friendly group of people who share a common interest in religious things. It's not a, a government-recognized 501c3 nonprofit. It's not a service provider. The church is not any of those things. There's some things that we tend to think about the church. Christians think it's fine to attend church indefinitely without joining. That's a problem today in the local church. Christians think of getting baptized apart from joining the church. We don't have time to go there, but uh, I believe baptism is that picture of, of obviously what Jesus has done in your life, but it's also a, a step into relationship with God's people symbolically. Christians take the Lord's Supper without joining. Now, we practice, uh, I guess, some level of open communion here where if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, but you're not a member, we allow that to happen. But we're not saying you never should join. We're just saying if you're visiting with us, and maybe you're from out of town, participate. Absolutely, we want you to be a part of that. But if you're a regular attender here, and you're a Christian, and you're receiving communion, then why not join the church? Christians view the Lord's Supper as their own private mystical experience, rather than an activity for church members who are incorporated into the body life together. 
Christians do not integrate their Monday to Saturday lives with the lives of other Christians. In other words, you kind of show up, you do your thing on Sunday morning, and you have little to no interaction Monday through Saturday with other members of the church. Christians assume they can make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's gathering on Sundays. Here's an issue that I've noticed in my 20 or so years of ministry is that back in the day, we considered faithful attendance like three Sundays a month. Now we would consider faithful attendance like 1.2, right? Barely one week a month is, is people would say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm participating. I'm a regular at Red Lane. But you show up barely once a month. There's something wrong with that. Am I getting on anybody's toes this morning? Good. Christians assume they can make a perpetual habit of being absent. I just said that from the church's gatherings. Number, number five or six, church, Christians make major life decisions. Here, I want you to hear this. Christians make major life decisions like moving, accepting a promotion, choosing even a spouse, and other things without considering the effects of those decisions on the family of relationships in the church or without consulting the wisdom of the pastors and other members. How many times do we as Christians in our lone rangerism make major decisions in our life and never consult other people in the church? Man, I found a great deal. Man, we would love to move away. Man, we love to do this. And you never think about what that impact is going to be on the local church. You say, what's the big deal? I can find another church. Great, if you will, but a lot of people won't. It's just wisdom in making decisions with other people who love you and who are living life with you. Christians also buy homes or rent apartments with little regard for how factors such as distance and cost will affect their ability to serve their church. And then lastly, Christians do not realize that they are partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare and the physical livelihood of other members of their church, even members they have not met. When one mourns, one mourns by himself. and one rejoices, one rejoices by herself. We need to realize, man, we're in this with each other. And I have a part to play. I have a role to play in the lives of others, spiritually as well as physically. So behind all of these symptoms, all, behind all these bad ideas, is this disease of individualism that is so pervasive in American culture today. We believe that we have the authority to conduct our Christian lives on our own, and we only include the church piece when it's convenient or when we need something. But what does the Bible have to say? Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. But first, he says, you are the body made up of many members. If my finger decided to just kind of secede from my hand and leave this body, how successful do you think it would be? It'd be dead. Not because I killed it, because it killed itself, right? We got to begin to think differently. Now, this past week, our governor made some statements about how we as Christians should worship. And so I just want to mention what he said in the context of what we're looking at this morning. Governor Northam uh, on Thursday told us that he believes it's not necessary for Christians to gather together as the church. Think about that. He, it's not necessary that we gather together to worship as the church. Now, individually, yeah, can you worship the Lord? Absolutely. But that's not devoid of your your, your, your obligation and responsibility to worship corporately together. And so I believe the governor spoke foolishly. I believe he spoke ignorantly on Thursday. Because according to the Bible, the church is for every Christian. It's important and imperative that we regularly gather together in person. We do this because the church alone has been granted authority to affirm and give shape to our Christian lives. You're not going to grow in the faith like you should if you're doing it on your own. So this brings us to a second thing we discover about church membership from Scripture. Number two, church membership is an opportunity to lock arms with other Christians in responsibility and love. Verses 23, 24, and 25 kind of flesh this out. Here these verses emphasize that it's... They emphasize it's not what a believer gets from the assembly, but rather the emphasis is on what he or she can contribute to the assembly. Think about what that means. That means this morning as you got up and, and, and put your best on and you came to church and you put a smile on, did you come here to get or to give? We understand the corporate nature of the church. We don't come to get. We come to give. 
That's what the local church is. See, there's a responsibility that we have to care for others, to love others, to be there for others. And so in verse 22, we're told to hold fast our confession. Or verse 23, to hold fast our confession. We are to, to, to do this together. The idea is perseverance, collectively helping one another stick to and to live out the gospel. Look what it says. Let us hold fast this confession of hope without wavering. There are some believers today who are wavering in their faith. And if it wasn't for the church of God coming alongside them and praying for them and caring for them, they perhaps would walk away from their faith. Verse 24, we see this coupled with perseverance, or this perseverance coupled with stimulation. We are to consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. In other words, we're to provoke and sharpen one another in the faith. These happen as the church body refuses to not meet together. Verse 25, do not neglect the assembling of the brethren, I think is one translation. And so the instructions in these verses are an imperative rather than a suggestion. We would like to look at this and say, yeah, that's a good idea, but it's not really necessary. The Word of God's telling is it's absolutely necessary. Why? Because you're called to be a committed people. We're called to love and to serve one another. Maybe you're still wondering what the big deal is here about church membership and church involvement. And I'm separating those two in that statement on purpose because we're not talking about your name being on a roll. We're talking about your name being on a roll and you're participating in the life of the fellowship, right? There's a difference there. <clears throat> Here's the big deal. Joining and getting involved in the church helps counter our wrong individual individualism and it helps us realize the corporate nature of Christianity. See, we must overcome the movie theater mentality. Now, I don't know that we remember what a movie theater is, but let me help you. Uh, it's so sad. On Thursdays, uh, Tuesdays, I should say, uh, many weeks I'm taking Haley to tennis practice over at uh, ACAC and uh, come back through, cut through, um, and go past the AMC movie theater. And it's not open during the week. It's the weirdest thing. To see a movie theater, it used to be so prevalent, now not open, but I did see that it's open on Friday nights when I went past it the other day, so glory to God there, we can go see a movie. But if you don't remember what a movie theater is, it's this place where you go in, there's a lot of seats and usually a lot of people there, huge giant screen, you get to see brand new movies. That's what a movie theater is. Think about what's happening there, though. You go in, you pay an enormous amount of money, you buy food that costs an enormous amount of money as well, and you go and you sit in a theater that's completely dark, and you don't talk to anybody except maybe for a few minutes to your friends or family, and then you watch this giant screen, uh, 300 or more people laugh and, and celebrate what they're seeing there, and then you get up and you walk out and you don't even contemplate talking with anyone at that point, and you never see them again. That's a movie experience. It happens on Sundays all the time. You come in, you sit down in a church, you may speak to a couple people around you, but you have no relationships with them by and large, and you don't relate outside of this setting until maybe the next Sunday. We've got to get past that in the church because we're not called to that sort of community. In fact, that's not community at all. When we came into relationship with Christ, we came into relationship with His bride, with His body. And so we were, you were brought into the community of faith, and God's Spirit is always leading us toward community with other believers. Church membership, then, is our opportunity to grasp hold of each other in responsibility and love. Through this identification with a particular church, what are we doing? We're letting the pastors, we're letting the other church members know that we intend to be committed in our attendance. Wow. Committed in our attendance. Committed in our giving. Committed in our prayer. Committed in our service. But again, in typical church in America today, it's a movie theater. I come in to receive. I don't come in to give. I come in to give uh, to devote a little bit of time, but I'm not going to devote anything else. I may give a little bit of money for admission, but that's about it. Don't ask me for anything else. That's typical American Christianity. I would argue it's not Christianity. I would argue it. Man, there's, Ricky, thanks for the amen, because I'm not hearing much out here this morning. We've got it wrong. 
So we need to begin to view membership less as a loose affiliation, useful only on occasion, and more as a regular responsibility involving us in one another's lives for the purposes of the gospel. This leads us to a third thing, and music went long again. Number three, church membership is in the is the corporate endorsement of a person's salvation. Look now at verse 26. We didn't read these earlier. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? These verses here serve as an encouragement as well as a warning that Christians can get themselves in a position that they actually and openly disobey and disregard the Bible. You ever heard of a person that calls themselves a Christian doing that? actually get into a place where they actively disregard and disobey the Word of God. It happens all the time, right? We're called sinners. We will do that. And so when we think about our propensity to sin, even as a follower of Jesus, that our flesh is still leading us away. It's always leading us astray. What keeps us on the straight and narrow? Our brothers and sisters, right? And so when we think about church and we think about membership in the church, one of the beauties of church membership is this endorsement of a person's salvation. Now, the church doesn't convey salvation upon a person. It's not or confer salvation upon a person. It endorses. In other words, we as a body of Christ, we look at a person who's made a profession of faith, and we look at what the transformation has taken part in their life, and we say, he looks like a Christian. She, she, she smells like a Christian. There's fruit in this person's life, and so we endorse that profession of faith. We're looking and inspecting fruit and saying what we see here seems to be genuine. Now, we know that there's not always, or people are not always genuine in their profession of faith. You don't believe that. And there was a guy who walked around with Jesus and 11 other dudes on, uh, for about three years of his life, and he was never actually on the team. His name was Judas Iscariot. So how do we know who is genuine and who is not? The simplest answer is we inspect the fruit. The extension of church membership to a person who's professing to be a follower of Christ or by doing that, the church is endorsing that person's salvation based on the evidence that's visible in his or her life. And the reverse is also true. When, it, when a church exercises what we would call an element of church discipline and we excommunicate one who is a member of our fellowship, we're not saying to that person, you're lost, you're going to hell. We're not saying that's not our place to say that. We're saying your life gives, gives no evidence of a follower of Jesus. Therefore, we're pulling back from that and retracting your membership because you don't seem to be of among us, right? So the church is not saying that this individual is definitely lost. Instead, the church is saying this individual does not give evidence of genuine faith. We're going to talk further about that next week. So church membership and the discipline that comes with it is a beautiful grace of God. What it does is it spurs us on in our faithfulness, and it warns when our lives do not live up to the holy standards of God. I don't know about you, but I need that in my life. I need someone who's going to be real with me and say, you know what, James, the way you're living, the way you're speaking, the what you do here, the way you speak to your wife, it's not of God. There's something wrong with your walk with Jesus. I need that. You need that. Where am I going to get that? I'm not going to get it from out there. I can only get it from in here. Church membership, commitment as the people of God, is important. So again, the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who's not connected and involved in a local church. In the age in which we live of failure to commit and individualism, we are robbed of the blessings and robbed of the benefits of church membership, and we continue to think that our faith is nothing more than an individual thing, rather than looking at it as a people. The church is a committed people. We are committed to Christ and to one another, which is form. I believe that's why Governor Northam attempted to argue for an individual approach to Christianity on Thursday. 
There he said that God is wherever you are. I agree with that statement, right? Don't you? God is wherever you are. How do we know that? Because the Bible gives us a picture of God being omnipresent. The problem with our governor's statement on Thursday is God may be wherever you are, but you're not wherever you want to be except for where you are, right? Did y'all confused by what I said? Because I kind of confused myself. <laughs> the problem with that statement is, is that Christianity is just about you and your faith with Jesus. Though that's part it's not the whole. See, we're called to be a body of believers, a house of God. We bring the temple with us, and collectively, we are the temple of God. That's the picture in the New Testament. So, yeah, I can sit in my tree stand, and I can worship the Father as I enjoy His beauty as I'm there, there to hunt something He's created. I've told you before, Rarely am I in the tree stand or rarely am I in my boat fishing and I'm just worshiping the Lord. It's just No, I'm focused on what I want to do, right? I, I'm, I'm grateful to be there, but it's not like being with the people of God. That's my point. We're called to be the people of God, the body of Christ, the house of God, not an individual Christian who's living an individual Christian life. There is a community. Now, some would look at me and, and respond to what I've said and say, you're nothing but a communist. That's a that's a communist approach to life, socialism. That's not what we're talking about either. Individuals, but making up the body of Christ. So we do this bodily, in person. I know right now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I'm going to land the plane. I'm, trust me, at three minutes. But I want to say this because I believe it's important. I understand right now why many Christians are not coming to church. I know we're, I'm speaking to people who are watching this online right now. I understand that. There, there's a danger for certain aspects of the population to this virus and all that. I, I get that. But at some point, whether it's after the, 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 the um, antidote vaccine, thank you, I was trying to, I was going to say virus again. You don't want a virus on the top of a virus. That'd be bad. When that all comes and it's, spread out to everybody and everybody gets it. Maybe you come back. But here, here's the point. You have to be in person. Now, some would say, well, the people in the New Testament, they wrote this, they had no concept, and technology is different now. And so the, it, you can be in church and be with the church technologically, online, and all that stuff. On some levels, yes, for a temporary set of time, that works. It cannot work forever. And that's not an old school guy saying that, though I am kind of old school in some of the ways I think. But if it's old, it's probably usually good. If it's new, it's, yeah, let's, let's wait till it works itself out. So here's what I'm saying. Technology cannot and never will replace the physical gathering of God's people together on the Lord's day. It won't. I did a premarital counseling last night on a Zoom call. It went as good as it could. It was horrible. <laughs> I want that couple sitting in front of me, right? Th they probably want me sitting in front of them. Now, we had to do it not from a virus standpoint. We had to do it because he's away, right? And so we, you know, we're all connected through technology. At least we can do that. But it's not sufficient for what we would need to have, and that's in person. And so we must get together and be together as the people of God bodily, looking people in the face, seeing body language, that must happen. We must gather together for the purpose of instruction, prayer, fellowship, and observing the ordinances which mark our identity as Christians. We do all of this because we are committed to Christ and to His church. Here's the question for you. Are you committed? I know I'm speaking to a lot of committed. I get that, and I praise the Lord for you this morning. But there's a lot who are not committed. How committed are you to Christ? It starts with your relationship with the Lord, right? You can't be committed to the church if you're not committed to Jesus. And so has there been a moment in your life where you knowingly and willingly understood your sin, the separation it's created, the condemnation it's brought you under, and placed faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin and for salvation? Has there been that moment? If not, today's the day for you. 
If you're a follower of Jesus and that is a part of your testimony, you're in relationship with Him, but for whatever reason, you're not as committed to the church as you ought to be. Maybe, maybe you've been visiting for some time. Maybe you're watching and you've been, you've been visiting. It's time, perhaps, to commit to the church. I had a conversation with a fellow just a couple days ago saying, you know what, we've been visiting. It's time for us to join. Bless God for that, right? Is that where you're at? Or maybe you're a member and, and, and you're committed on paper here, but you're not as committed as you should be. I didn't, and my goal this morning was not to just stomp on, to, on toes, though the Word of God does that often. How committed are you to the local church? Jesus is committed to you. How committed are you to Him and to His people? Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's a Word that reminds us of Your goodness and Your grace. God, even looking over our small group lesson again this morning, being reminded of the fact that you can do anything and everything. As Gabriel was sent to Mary and was instructed to tell her of what was going to take place in her life, that she was going to bear the Son of God. And, and she sitting there wondering, how can this be? I'm not married. I've never been with a man. and I'm young. How could this be? And Gabriel says, nothing is impossible with God. You think about what salvation is, it is the impossible being made possible only by God. The sinners could be reconciled to a holy God. This morning in this room, this morning watching us online, perhaps there are those who the greatest need in their life is not a commitment to church, but a commitment to Christ, to be saved. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would draw them through your spirit to faith and repentance. Lord, for believers, myself included, I pray, God, that you would lead us to a place of fresh renewal in our commitment to the Lord and to his church. God, that we would begin to look at our budget as a family, looking at our calendar as a family, looking at priorities as a family and saying, you know, what, what needs to be cut out here so that there can be more room for God and the things of God and the people of God? What do we not, not have to do on the weekends so that we can be more committed, more faithful to the Lord and to His people and to the Lord's work in this community? God, those are great questions that we need to be asking. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and help us to answer them this morning and throughout this week. For we desire to be a committed people. And God, I'm thankful for a church that loves one another. I'm thankful for a church that serves and cares for one another, that prays for one another. God, I just ask that you deepen that commitment. Help us to flesh out the prayer that Jesus had for his people, that we would love one another, and that people would see that love and be drawn to Christ. As we move into this time of response, I pray that our hearts are open, and God, that we are available to what your spirit is leading us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing, let's respond.